Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you enjoyed our coverage leading up to and through Hall of Fame induction weekend. One last one from my Cooperstown collection for you right now. Jeff Idelson spent the last 12 years as the president of the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. And in that role, he is one of the most visible people connecting the players to the hall and in turn back to the fans. Jeff is the one you see on TV who gets to announce the new Hall of Fame class publicly for the first time when the Veterans Committee selections are announced in December and again when the writer's ballot selections are announced in January. Jeff is leaving for his next venture called Grassroots Baseball after spending the last 25 years working at the Hall. And that's even before Mariano Rivera and Derek Jeter made their big league debuts. That's a long time. Jeff was actually in media relations with the Yankees in some bad but formative years from 1989 to 1993. And before that, he broke into baseball in the mid-1980s with the Boston Red Sox. Working at the Hall of Fame for 25 years means living in the tiny village of Cooperstown for 25 years. And as I was recently discussing with some colleagues over dinner, you can't just like baseball in order to do that. You have to love baseball and love it more than any of us already does. It's otherworldly love for the game, the history, the people, and everything that goes beyond whether or not your favorite team won last night or what pitcher they're going to trade for. The backdrop of Hall of Fame induction weekend is the greatest time to celebrate that, to go back in time and soak in baseball to the point where you're thinking only about the romanticism of the game and not about the Twitter rants that tackle us on a daily basis about lineup cards and pitching changes. Last weekend, before the induction ceremony, I sat on a bench outside the fabulous and serene Otisaga Resort in Cooperstown. Inside, there were dozens of Hall of Famers walking around. Outside, it was just me and the outgoing Hall of Fame president, Jeff Idelson, sitting on a bench and talking baseball. So I want to start with a very simple question that has probably a very complicated answer. Describe for me the last 25 years, what they felt like. The The last 25 years was like sorting my baseball cards as a kid, Sweeney, and like looking at all these heroes, except these ones came to life. They weren't made out of cardboard. So having that opportunity to work with these guys, get to know them, uh, has been incredibly gratifying as a baseball fan and as a professional. What's your favorite part of having done this job? What's, what's been, I mean, once a year it becomes crazy. I think probably twice a year it becomes crazy. But the everyday aspect of it, what's your favorite part? really what the favorite part for me, Sweeney, is the connection that fans have had to the Baseball Hall of Fame, and as a fan myself, to be able to share in those memories and uh, feelings about coming to Cooperstown. And there has been nothing more gratifying to see a family of, you know, a family of five come. They haven't talked much in the car, maybe. They've come up from New York, and all of a sudden they walk into the Hall of Fame, and, you know, there's the uh, young kid saying, hey, look, there's Mariano Rivera, the greatest Yankee of them all. And the dad says, but you never saw 
uh, Reggie Jackson play? And then the grandfather chimes in and says, yeah, but Mickey Mantle was the best and neither of those guys could hand a, uh, hold a candle to Mick. So to see the cross-generational enjoyment of the game to me has been very special. Yeah, I guess on a daily basis, you just kind of walk through the museum and kind of see what the crowds are into and what, the, what attracts them? Absolutely, because... We're just caretakers for the Baseball Hall of Fame. The Baseball Hall of Fame belongs to the fans, and knowing what they like, knowing what they want to see, and how they feel is important to making sure you provide an experience that's worthwhile for them. And obviously you lived in Cooperstown after uh, spending you know, New York, Boston. Um, it's, it's a different place, and I've, I've vowed to myself I don't want to use the word quaint too much this week. I used it for the first time here, and that's pretty much it. But uh, what's, what's the environment like here for you? Cooperstown environment's been awesome. You know, it's funny, when I was coming up here to interview, Bill Guilfoyle uh, hired me. Bill had been the assistant PR guy with the Yankees from 60 to 69 and took over in Cooperstown. I said, well, how do you get there, Bill? And he said, this is before GPS. And Matt, he, Matt, he just said, you go to Albany and take a left. So I said, okay, Bill. But what I've come to realize is this town of 1800 is like living in a Norman Rockwell painting. Uh, it's gorgeous. Um, it, it's Americana. And the Hall of Fame itself is like being on a college campus because the intellect is there. Uh, it's a small environment. It's very challenging. And as a community, it was a great way to raise children because of how nurturing it's been. And so your first day here was in 1994? Yeah. No, my very first day working was Phil Rizzuto's induction. Uh, uh, August 1st, 1994, he, Leo DeRocher, and Lefty Carlton all went in, went home for a couple weeks, and then uh, stayed full-time starting in September. And that was a pretty good, uh, that was a hot day with Phil swatting away the bugs. It's still an iconic moment, right? It certainly was. It certainly was, Sweeney. And, uh, you know, having worked with Phil with WPIX all those years with the Yankees, it was it was great to see him in action. And he gave a long speech, but it was classic Rizzuto and so funny, no one seemed to mind. And the great uh, yogiism from that weekend is that Phil and Yogi are playing golf right here at Leatherstocking Golf Course. Phil leads a push short, and Yogi says, oh, you Huckleberry, to himself or no one in particular. And Yogi says, that's okay, Phil. Everybody knows that 70% of all putts left short don't go in. <laughs> uh, it's terrific. You know, we had local flavor in New York, too. Bob Murphy was part of that same class. He was the Frick Award winner in 1994. Bob Murphy, great broadcaster, voice of the Mets uh, for so many years, wonderful guy. Um, great to see him represented that year as the Frick winner. And for me, getting to see Tom Seaver uh, on that day in 94 was especially gratifying because I had been with Boston when we brought him over from Chicago in 1986, and he and I were very close. So it was great to see the Mets uh, have some representation in Cooperstown as well. So I, I think you might have just said it for me, but... I I wonder if you have a first cool moment, first cool Hall of Fame moment. Was it that induction day? Was there something else after that was part of the job? You're like, I, I really can't just believe this is happening. There have been several. It's hard to pick one cool moment, but from uh, really being with these living legends, many of whom I knew already, as I often say, working for the Yankees was like a training ground for the Hall of Fame because of all the greatness the Yankees have, have had over the years with all their players. But uh, you know, just the coolest moment maybe was being in the uh, members' dinner, uh, which I went to in 1995, just the Hall of Famers, uh, and then and then myself and the commissioner the last uh, 11 years. Uh, that's when it all is uh, the best because you're like sitting in the middle of a clubhouse, the stories are flowing, the wine is flowing, and everyone's having a good time. Your first year as Yankees PR director was what year? Uh, 1989. 89. So you, you know, you went through some years that not a lot of other people have experienced. Um, when you get into that environment and it's old Yankee Stadium, that's let's face it, it was half full on a lot of those nights. What was the experience like on those late 80s, early 90s teams that 
weren't necessarily as beloved as the ones we're used to seeing. The experience was great. Uh, we were not a good. We, we did not have good ball clubs then. That was just before uh, the Yankees became good. And uh, you know, Gene, I went had four general managers, but when Gene Make, Michael came in at the end, he made a concerted effort to really build the franchise with quality, uh, quality people and quality players. And uh, working for the Yankees was interesting. Mr. Steinbrenner was, uh, you know, running the show back then, and uh, learning from him was an incredible experience. Uh, I learned that. Uh, uh, you always had to be ahead of the curve and to not take anything too personally. But by and large, all he did was want to win and uh, develop some lasting friendships that I still have today. Bernie Williams, Buck Showalter, uh, the list goes on and on. Dave Winfield, Wade Boggs, and uh, working for the Yankees was a, a great challenge. You had a uh, football Hall of Famer you dealt with, too. Deion Sanders was on your watch, too, wasn't he? D was there, yeah. He had uh, just graduated uh, from college and came up, up, up to play for us and got really rushed up to the majors. and. Dion was electrifying. I mean, probably the, the the best games were watching him and Bo Jackson against each yeah. other with two foot, two gridiron guys on the diamond. Uh, but I remember it vividly when Dion struck out in the sixth inning in that last game in Seattle, and uh, all of a sudden I looked down in the dugout and he's shaking hands with everybody after a strikeout. No idea what was going on. I go to the clubhouse and he was uh, getting dressed and ready to go play for the uh, Atlanta Falcons. Well, and he did, had not told you or anybody else. Well, I guess it was kept quiet even <laughs> to the point where the PR guy didn't know. But I learned enough. I learned quick enough. <laughs> the uh, um, the managers you had leading up to Buck, I mean, you had you had Dallas Green, right? And yep. then uh, Stump Merrill, Bucky Dent. Um, again, the, give, in a different media world, um, they might have had issues, challenges. Yeah, yeah oh. but, but back then, it was just, it was still New York for them, wasn't it? It really was. I mean, no more so than, you know, than Bucky. Uh, Dent, who grew up in that organization and uh, uh, really, uh, you know, taking the reins of him as manager, we... I believe, uh, yeah, I believe he, he was there for a year and a half. But every guy had a different uh, way of, of, of managing, and they brought different skill sets to the tables. But, you know, Dallas certainly had a temper. I love the guy, but he certainly had a temper which wouldn't fly today. I don't know the last time anyone kicked a spread over, but that, yeah. was, uh, that was something he would do on, on occasion. You know, B- Bucky's place is so unique. I mean, he has a Yankee, he's a Yankee hero who had to take over. That's why I always, I always wondered like how hard it is for guys like that when people thought Don Mattingly would be a great manager of the Yankees. That'd be great, but someday you have to fire Don Mattingly. And Bucky Dent had to go through that. Well, there's expectations. Yeah, the fans have expectations, and they believe that success as a player is immediately going to translate to the manager's seat of the front office. And it's not that easy. There are different skill sets. or different jobs. Certainly, you look at a guy like Bucky Dent, and the intellect is there, and the desire and passion is there. But he didn't really get a, a whole lot of... Uh, uh, opportunity or runway to succeed. We didn't have a very good te- team, and and probably the the only time I had a surreal moment, Sweeney, with the Yankees was when we introduced we hired Bucky on the road in Boston, and then we introduced him uh, to New York. No, we didn't hire him in Boston. We hired him on the road. But when I introduced him to the New York media when we came back, the Yankees were playing the Red Sox, and having grown up in the Red Sox organization before coming to the Yankees. I just all of a sudden started getting dizzy as I'm starting to introduce the antagonist in my life because of 1978 yeah. to someone I was going to work with. And I, I believe he actually got uh, got let go in Boston, which that's was, what yeah yeah that's what it was was that we we uh, we didn't hire him in Boston, but we let yeah. him go in Boston, and uh, yeah, obviously there was some symbolism to doing that at Fenway Park. Stump Merrill is still around at uh, Yankee Spring Training a lot, and he's a member of the organization that's still. Uh, players still seem to love him so much. What was that? Uh, I mean, they were bad teams, but you know he had to go through what he went through. What do you remember about him? 
Well, what you think about with Stump is his uh, ability to connect uh, with the younger kids. I mean, he was forever a minor league manager before he got his shot at the majors. And, you know, when you're... Uh, you know, when you're a minor league manager or coordinator or a coach, you know, the relationships with the players is much different. And for those that came up and played for Stump, you, you heard stories about how much they liked him as a manager, and that was the qualities that he brought to the clubhouse. How many times did George Steinbrenner fire you? Did you keep count? <laughs> only only once did he fire me, but uh, then uh, when I went home, he wondered why I had left the office. So I think <laughs> it was just more of a, an exasperation over something that had leaked uh, than really wanting to fire me. And uh, George and I had a great relationship. I really did like working for him. He was a tough, tough boss. It was tough love. But, you know, I respected where he came from and uh, learned greatly under his, his leadership and uh, what he did to make that organization always competitive and trying to be successful uh, is endearing and really important and great for Yankee fans. So tell me one story where he called you into his office and then you walked out of there shaking your head going, what just happened? Well, um, I mean, it didn't happen too often, uh, fortunately, but uh, uh, the great story that I remember having with him was my very first day at the Yankees uh, was an equitable cocktail party. The, the equitable used to do mm-hmm. cocktail party before the team would go to spring training. And the position that opened as assistant PR director for Harvey Green came down to me and a guy from the Tigers who had more experience than I did. And the guy from the Tigers ended up taking the job with the Orioles, and I came to New York. So I go into this cocktail party, and I see I'm 24 years old. I see Mr. Steinbrenner, and I'm not awed or, or, or in fear of him. And I walk right up to him and say, Mr. Steinbrenner, I'm Jeff Idelson. I'm your new assistant PR guy. I just wanted to say hello. And as George always did, he put his hands on my shoulders and shook me. And he said, nice to have you aboard. You're the young man from Detroit, aren't you? And I said, no, sir, I'm the young man from Boston. And he said, I see. He said, I have three words of advice for you, son. I said, what's that, Mr. Steinbrenner? He said, rent, don't buy. <laughs> Uh, you were there in a challenging time too, because he got banned under your watch. He did, and that was uh, that was difficult to see. I mean, I have a great relationship with Dave Winfield. I had a great relationship with Mr. Steinbrenner, and uh, uh, because of what happened there, he ended up being suspended for quite some time. And um, uh, we had a number of managing general partners who came in, but that was a difficult time for the Yankees and for him as well. So on a daily basis, when that's, I mean, you know what the New York news cycle is like. When the news cycle is something that is, it involves the team, but it has nothing to do with what's happening on the baseball field. How, do, how does that affect your job? Uh, it affects your job in that uh, you start to have to explain for things off the field some uh, sometimes. And we didn't have a lot of that, but... Uh, um, you know, George, uh, George just wanted to constantly have a fire lit under the players. He, he thought that would be a motivating factor. And in that era, to a certain degree, it was. If you talk to players from the 70s and 80s, uh, you know, they, they feared seeing him, but it helped. Uh, as you moved into the 90s and 2000s, that tactic maybe didn't work as well as it once did. And he's, um, he was not supposed to be involved in the operations, but he kind of still made his presence felt during those period of time, didn't he? Well, when you have such an imprint on the organization as he did, and you remember at that point his kids weren't involved, that's really when Hal started getting involved was in the early 90s when he was graduating from from college. Uh, And and you'd start to see Hal a little bit more frequently, which was great. Um, But, uh, you know, George was the man in charge, and uh, uh, the imprint he left was unbelievable. And even in suspension, uh, you always didn't want, you always wanted to make sure you did what George would have wanted you to do, and that you never lose that. The uh, the guys who would build the foundation for the Yankees in the years after and later in the 90s, they, they all came into the organization while you were there. I'm curious if you have any, any recollection. I mean, Derek Jeter was the number one pick, but do you have any other recollection of, of uh, Mariano Rivera, Jorge Posada, or Andy Pettit in those early years? 
As early as Bernie Williams was a, a rookie, uh, he was he came up in 89 the same year I was there. So you started to see Bernie mature a little bit. Um, <clears throat> you know, in terms of Mariano, I remember him uh, having a severe arm injury in A-ball. I believe he was either at Sarasota or Lauderdale. I'm thinking Lauderdale. And I remember Buck Showalter wanting to write Mariano a note about uh, staying encouraged to not let that happen. And so Buck and I worked on a letter together. Said, I didn't know Mariano, but we sent it off. And when I visited with Mariano last, uh, last spring at his house, he told me that, that that letter had great meaning to him and he kept it for decades. Wow, wow. Uh, and those guys had so much success. This is, you know, the weekend that we're here talking, and I'm not sure exactly when fans are going to hear this, but the weekend we're talking, this feels like just a celebration of, there's a lot of people here, but so much of this is Yankee-centric because of Mariano and his 100% acceptance into this club. Every year there's going to be a lead dog in the crowd, whether it be geographic, or geographical or how they relate it to the fans. When players have a deep relationship with the fans, as deep as you can have, that's when the fans want to come back and say thank you, Sweeney. And uh, I've seen this for 26 years in Cooperstown. Not necessarily the greatest players, but the ones who connected with the fans. And you could you can easily argue that Mariano was one of those guys who did as much, if not more, than anybody to connect with fans. Uh, and because of that, you're going to see you'll, you have a massive turnout for somebody like him. And let's not dis- discredit or discount Mike Mussina, Roy Halladay in Philadelphia, and the other guys. But uh, yeah, it's going to be a Yankee-centric crowd. The biggest crowd you've had here so far is what? Biggest crowd we had was 2007 when uh, Cal Ripken and Tony Gwynn were inducted in front of 82,000 people in the town of 1800. Wow. Uh, what were the logistics of getting that many people in here? Did you anticipate that it was going to be as big as it was? We anticipated it was going to be big. Uh, Baltimore has always been a, a strong uh, draw for us. Uh, the fans in Baltimore are incredible. And when you have Cal Ripken, who's uh, you know, the, the, the beacon of light in that organization among the younger generation, we knew it was going to be big. And both he and Tony uh, were fan connectors. Tony was unbelievable in how he connected with fans. But we anticipated it, Sweeney. We started planning two years out. And uh, safe to say that it was one of the better inductions ever. Everything went off without a hitch. And uh, it's gonna, you know, those are training grounds, I guess, for what's coming the next couple of years. Mariano this year, Derek Jeter next year. Um, and you geographic and fan connection. You have you have, you have a double hit right there that means this place is just going to be overrun for two years in a row. It really will, Sweeney. And it, again, it's a chance for fans to come back and say thank you. It's, it's, it's the icing on the cake. It's, uh, it's the cherry. It's blowing out the candle. It's whatever you want it to be. But it's funny because I'll run into people from New York and they'll say, you know, my gosh, you know, you're not going to have enough room for Mo and Derek. You need to hold this in Yankee Stadium. And my answer is, well, what does Yankee Stadium hold? 50,000 people. Well, we yeah. had 82,000 people. Yeah. So why would we want to do that? And plus, you know, Cooperstown is upstate New York. It's 5,000 blocks from Midtown for those who are New York-centric. It's not that far, and it's a gorgeous place. I actually mentioned to Mariano earlier, I said, you know, you're going to be speaking to a crowd larger than you ever pitched in front of, probably. That's uh, it's quite an undertaking. He didn't seem to be phased, just as Mariano doesn't seem to be phased by anything. No, nothing phases Mo. I mean, that's uh, the cool and collect, and uh, I remember a great quote of Mariano's that I actually had taped above my computer uh, working for the Hall of Fame after a World Series when he said, if you don't control your emotions, your emotions will control you. There are a number of cool things in your office that I discovered uh, on a visit here. Um, and there's a large picture collection that, like Arthur Richmond, is going to have to go somewhere with you when you leave <laughs> your office. Uh, there was one in particular that does, it does not involve a baseball Hall of Famer, uh, but it struck me, and I know you said there was a story behind it. It was from your Yankee days, and it's somewhere in Miami, I guess, uh, near Fort Lauderdale. You and two Indiana legends 
Don Mattingly and Larry Bird. Phenomenal photo. Tell me the story behind it. Sweeney, the story behind it is that, uh, again, I grew up in Boston before I came to New York to work for the Yankees, and I grew up a Celtics fan, and Larry Bird was in my sweet spot in terms of his uh, his ascent was late high school and early college years, and I just uh, I loved watching Larry Bird play. And uh, when I came to New York, I had to find ways to connect with the players early on, and I asked Don Mattingly what he thought of Larry Bird, and Don told me, oh, God, I'm a Celtics fan because of Larry Bird. So I said, well, how many times have you met? And he said, we've never met. So I went to my, my counterpart and good friend Jeff Twist with the Celtics, and I said, hey, can we arrange something when you guys are playing the Heat? And uh, he asked Larry, and Larry was into it. So I uh, went down there with Donnie and his kids, and uh, it was nice to be a fly on the wall <laughs> and uh, hang out with two Indiana legends. That's Kid in the Candy Store right there, huh? Yes, very much so. <laughs> so does induction weekend, does it feel like Christmas in July, literally Christmas in July? I think it does. I mean, even for me as a fan, Sweeney, I mean, for fans in general, yes. I mean, everybody's coming to see your six inductees or your inductees every year, but it's also the 50 to 60 returning Hall of Famers who are there to welcome these guys. And, you know, you can walk down Main Street and see Joe Morgan coming out of a store, or if you look up high enough, you might see Dave Winfield walking down the middle of the street. It's very much uh, like Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, except it's all baseball. The uh, the gentleman who gets to take your place is a, is no stranger to baseball. Tim Mead has been with the Angels for decades, and is generally regarded as one of the one of the finest people in the game. Uh, what do you think about the uh, the hands that you're leaving this to? I couldn't be happier. Tim and Tim and I have been friends for 30 years. He was 40 years with the Angels, and. Uh, when uh, I was talking with the board, uh, his name came up, and, and he was certainly someone that would have been at the top of my list. And uh, not only will Tim do a great job, but he will enjoy doing the job because he loves baseball, he has the passion, and the Hall of Fame is stronger because of his inclusion. And your next project is called Grassroots Baseball. Tell me about it. Well, um, I spent eight years at the Major League level, Sweeney, uh, promoting their stars, the Red Sox and Yankees, 25 in Cooperstown, and figuring out what to do next, um, I thought about getting back to the amateur game. We had a tra traveling photographer at the Hall of Fame, Gene Fruth, who, when covering the major leagues and international games around the world, would always break off and cover kids' ball, and I really uh, enjoyed seeing the photos that she took and, uh, and liked seeing some of those games when I would occasionally go with her. Uh, and so she decided to put a book together, and we thought about tying Hall of Famers to the book. It's a coffee table book called Grassroots Baseball, Where Legends Begin. And in each of the 15 chapters, eight from the U.S., seven from outside the U.S., are incredible photographs of kids playing baseball, each of the chapters being introduced from a Hall of Famer or other living legend who grew up in that area, giving about a 500 to 750-word personal essay about what it was like to grow up there. So in New York, you read about Whitey Ford. You read about how he... he Loved uh, playing stickball growing up, how we went to a tryout at Yankee Stadium and Paul Critchell taught him how to throw a curveball. Stories like this then are followed by a dozen, a dozen pages of photos of kids baseball in New York. And because of that, uh, I got interested in doing something grassroots related. Gene and I decided to put together a program and now we're uh, promoting the amateur game around the world and giving back in underprivileged and underserved communities to get more kids to play. Yeah, so on a daily basis, what does this involve for you as far as getting kids more involved? 
Well, we decided we needed to start along Route 66. We figured that'd be a fun way to begin grassroots baseball. And uh, in each community that we've gone through, we're about halfway across Route 66 now. We're seeing American Legion, Little League, Babe Ruth League, kids of all levels, and, and really just promoting their, their part in the game. And in each of these areas, we're also doing equipment uh, drops and using Hall of Famers to do so. So uh, Trevor Hoffman's going to join us at the Amarillo Sod Poodles next week. Uh, Goose Gossage is going to be in Albuquerque. George Brett, Jim Tomey, uh, Ozzie Smith have all had roles in helping us promote amateur baseball. It's funny, when we made the trip to London only a few weeks ago, I thought one of the more important things is, you know, there are athletes all over the world, but they don't all know how to play baseball, and it's a specialized skill. So trying to get these young athletes and teach them the game is an integral part of what the London series to me was all about and what the further expansion into international markets is all about. It sounds like you're still actively have to pursue that. You still actively have to pursue that in the U.S. too. Absolutely. Um, as, as travel ball gets bigger, you start to see the little leagues thinning out. And the idea is to replenish the little leagues because there are plenty of kids out there who, if given the opportunity, will play the game. And what we're finding as we visit with boys and girls clubs, big brothers and big sisters, work with these young kids as they haven't had that opportunity. And for every group we're meeting with, when they get that brand new Rawlings glove in baseball and they're out on the field playing catch with Jim Tomey, there's something magical. There's something magical about that, and a number of them now are playing on summer teams. And there are teams that come through here all summer long too, right? There are. There's a big. This is a big travel ball area. There's a, a three different uh, facilities in and around Cooperstown where kids that are 11, 12, 13, 14 can play baseball and visit the Hall of Fame. Tell me one thing about the weekend, whether it's, you know, take me inside a private moment. That's the one thing you're going to miss that, that has happened to you and continues to happen every year. You're going to say, you know what, that was really a cool part of this job. Really just seeing, uh, pre preparing the incoming Hall of Famers for the enormity of what it is. And, you know, these guys have spent their lives on the biggest stage in sports, you know, in the, in, in the middle of a diamond, uh, anywhere on a diamond, and surrounded by 40,000, 50,000 fans every year. But you can hide your emotions. You're so locked in and you're so focused. When you're in Cooperstown and you're being inducted, it's, uh, it's the 80,000, 70,000, 60,000 fans in front of you. It's the 50 to 60 Hall of Famers behind you as you're giving your speech. It's your entire family in the front row, and it's a different experience. And prepping those Hall of Famers for what that experience is like and explaining it's nothing like they've ever been through. And then afterwards seeing the thank goodness I got through that is really gratifying. I'll give you one quick quick idea. I was in the plaque gallery three years ago with Mike Schmidt who was inducted in 1995 and here it is 25 years later and he's looking at his plaque and I said, you know, what are you doing? He said, I'm still consumed by my speech. Wow. It's, you know, it's funny you bring that up because I'm sitting here thinking about these guys have spent, and you were around them when they were, you were around great players when they were playing, and you know what, you know, the bravado they had to have carry with them to the field every day, and how sometimes that didn't always match up in their relationships outside or off the field. Sometimes the, just the, the media relationship, even if, even if they were good, you knew how separate they were. This experience seems to be something different. They seem to leave all all of that behind, all the weight goes off their shoulders. I feel like there's always a different level of humility that they never had when they were players. Absolutely. It's very different being on a field than standing here in Cooperstown um, where you have all of these other, you, they can't believe they're a part of this group. I mean, uh, you know, that, that being, I guess the, the point, Sweeney, is, is that all of these guys are great and you're surrounded by greatness and you don't want to screw up. But 
Uh, you know, if you're a ball player, you haven't had to give a 10 or 12 minute speech. And the uh, enormity of Cooperstown, what it stands for, the realization that your, your, your opportunity to get there is one in a hundred, it all starts to set in. For people that want to help get involved in grassroots baseball, what do they do? Well, the book, uh, grassrootsbaseballbook.com, is where you can buy uh, the book, which is, again, phenomenal. Ichiro Suzuki, Hensley Mullins, R Ricky Henderson, Nolan Ryan, the list goes on and on, Wade Boggs. Uh, or our website is grassrootsbaseball.com. Uh, it's all about celebrating the kids and uh, uh, promoting them and giving back so that more kids can play. Good luck, and thank you for your service to all of us in the game. Thank you, Sweeney. That's Jeff Idelson, and again, the new venture is called Grassroots Baseball, the next step in growing and loving the game of baseball. And for those of you who are curious, the person taking over for Jeff Idelson is Tim Mead, a longtime media relations and vice president with the Angels, who uh, loves the game, I know, as much as Jeff does. And uh, it'll be another successful venture for him, a successful transition at the Hall of Fame going from Jeff Idelson to Tim Mead. If you've missed any of my conversations with Mariano Rivera, Mike Messina, Derek Jeter, and others this past month, please go check them out on the 30 with Murdy archive. It's on radio.com, Apple Podcasts, or any place you go get your podcasts. Subscribe, review, all that good stuff. And until next time, thank you for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.